Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. We're getting pretty close uh, to finishing off the 12th chapter of this book together. Uh, we've got an, another sermon in the 12th, and then we're in the 13th, and, and then we're all uh, the way done, uh, and, and we'll kind of keep going from there. So uh, chapter 12, verses 18 through... Uh, 24, and they say this, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and a sound of the trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If uh, even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, and to the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteousness made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and a sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is the, the word of the Lord. You guys can uh, take a seat again. I, I won't make you stand for at least five minutes. So... Um, couple things I, I told some of the, the worship team when we were setting up and I was sitting there. Uh, have you ever had that feeling when you move into a new house uh, and, and then you're in your bed in a new house in a new location for the very first time and you're like, this is so weird. That, that is, that's kind of the way I feel like here preaching to you, not on a stage and like 20 feet closer and everything like that, but we'll, 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 we'll be all right. So, um, The, the text this morning is, is a weird one to connect to. Uh, when, when you just read those verses, you're like, oh, okay. Uh, and if you've ever walked into a conversation or uh, a, a group of people chatting, maybe at a party or, or somewhere out, and the conversation is about something that you are absolutely clueless about, and, and maybe you smile and nod and pretend that you know what's going on, or, or maybe you zone out hoping that they'll begin to talk about something that you understand again, or maybe you just leave. You're like, yeah, whatever, and, and, and you go, uh, because the words or the context of the situations being discussed are, are so absolutely foreign to you and Greek to you that, that, that there's just no ability for you uh, to connect. Maybe they're recounting an event or something that you couldn't go to. Or maybe they're discussing a hobby that, that you just couldn't care less about and you don't have any connection to. Either way, it's hard to connect to a, a conversation or a dialogue that you have no connection to. And, and that's pretty much the scenario that we walk into as we read this text. The original audience of the book of Hebrews would have been people of Jewish descent. So the words in this text, though maybe a little different to us contextually, they made perfect sense to them. They knew the history, they knew the, the context, they knew the stories, they knew the lineage, and those stories would have been repeated in their heritage all along by, by their ancestors to them, so they knew exactly what was going on. It was crystal clear to them what is happening in this, but since it's not for us, we're going to need to do a little bit of groundwork so that we can maybe understand what's going on here. And before we dig into those actual words here, I, I do want to ground us again in the, the book. The book of Hebrews is written to a, a smaller group of believers, likely in Rome, who are finding that their expectations of faith and the reality of walking out that faith were, were not exactly aligning. Their faith in Christ, their, their diligence to, to follow him had brought something besides peace, it brought a lot of tension to their lives. 
Uh, they, they were not having peace in their lives culturally. Faith had brought them a lot of trouble, some heartache, some, some worry. The, the trouble was in form of cultural rejection, right? They weren't popular in the streets for following Jesus, cultural opposition. Some of them were even being persecuted and suffering under the hands of the people around them. It, it's likely that the, the element of how much they were suffering probably varied from person to person, but the reality remained the same. Following Jesus was costly and it wasn't easy. And it sure wasn't popular. And so it's a grind and a marathon to them, to which the, the, the author has been telling them over and over in this 12th chapter, in, in light of the difficulty and the cost, uh, keep going, press through with endurance. The, the difficulty and heaviness of following Jesus was so real for them that it was causing many of them to think, should I, should I quit? Like, would it be a better option to, to just stop all of this Jesus stuff and abandon following Christ and backtrack to what they considered the, the old covenant and just leave Jesus behind? They wanted to know, hey, can I follow the laws and the sacrificial systems and, and try and do ceremonial cleansing? And, and can I go back to the, to the priests over me? Can I just go back to that and leave the Jesus stuff behind? To which the author tells them continually in the book, you can't do that and Jesus is better. No matter where you turn, Christ is better than, than anything else. And like here, a little bit of a sidebar. I'm a little bit frustrated with you guys because Tim got like eight amens and I've got eight in like 12 years. Okay, so I'd, I'd like two today. We'll just start low bar, just two. We'll bring it back. He's the better covenant. He's the better priest. He's the better promise. He's the better hope. He's, he's the better everything. You're not going to find anything better than him. The point that the author is showing is, yes, your pain is real. Yes, it's difficult. I'm not minimizing it. And though you are suffering and your rejection and in your worry of rejection is constant, Christ is worth it. So endure. Hold on with endurance through the storm and they know that you have access to God and the throne of God, the presence of God in the storm. That's one of the things that I wish that we could get the aha moment over. It's not just that Jesus is better. It's, it's that the presence of God is with you even in hard things. And this book seems specifically relevant to our uh, current culture and our church. We're not thrown in prison for following Jesus right now. That, that's, a, that's a spot for an amen. But to, to follow the ways of Jesus in this moment are absolutely looked at with disdain. They're rejected. It will cost you things to follow Jesus. If you follow him in a way that doesn't hide him all the time under a bushel, right? If you follow him actually with your life, it's going to cost you friends, it's going to cost you opportunities, and it's going to even going to cost you even more things than that. Even in our own church, we have people here who, who their jobs, their career, and, and their, their, their entire reputation and how they make money in culture is in question for following Jesus right now. I wonder if that surprises you to hear our own family has that going on for them. Following Jesus raises this question, how am I going to make money? And, and what if I'm honest and follow Jesus and it costs me all things? This is the world that we live in. In a time where the orthodox ways of Christ are not just rejected, they're also hated. There was a time that people would go, well, you do your weird Jesus thing and I'm just not going to. That, that's not even an option anymore. To follow Christ is largely hated. A day where truth has been made quite relative based on what a person wants, where the common good of culture has been literally sacrificed for what each person wants. The concept in this type of culture of laying down your life to find life in Christ is considered psychotic and madness. 
The idea of battling your flesh and the desires of what you want instead of gratifying them. The, the, the thought of needing forgiveness or even that there is an existence of a thing called sin uh, is all met with contempt in the world that we live in and has probably caused you at times like the original audience to wonder, hey, is going against the grain worth it? Because this is difficult. You get tired of paddling against the current of culture over and over and over. You're like, can I, just get a, can I just get a week where it doesn't feel like this? They were feeling that, and we have probably felt it as well. And I pray that when we feel those moments, we hear the words of the author that Christ is worth it. And that through our faith, we learn to endure until the very end. We can't ignore some of the warnings that we've seen so far in the book of Hebrews. He's warned us a lot of things. Hey, these are propensities that you may roll to in a culture that's difficult. We've seen people do exactly what he said not to do. We've seen people neglect to gather together. Some people will come when they feel like that is neglecting gathering together. And some people have remolded the faith into something more palatable so that they can believe that in the social square it won't cause them a problem. And then we've also seen, if we would talk real over the last maybe three years, we've seen people that we love and we've walked through abandon the faith altogether. And we've dealt with the emotional whiplash of seeing good friends that we've loved and we've been to weddings and done amazing things with now hold in contempt the faith that they used to walk with us gladly. Now they hate it and they hate us. This is the reality, even with the tears and the stress that we at times find in following Christ, in the middle of that, verse 24 declares something pretty amazing, that the blood of Christ still speaks a better word. Yes, that's hard. There's still something better. It speaks a word into your personal brokenness. And here's the beauty. In the face of all the tension, the word of Christ and the blood of Christ puts an end on everything that's broken. We can't see it or taste it all the way yet, but there is an end date. And this is the beauty of the promise of why it says, hold on, and Jesus is still better in light of all of that. With the grounding finished, we can roll into the part for today. Um, in 1964, a defensive lineman for the Vikings named Jim Marshall earned a name he never, ever, ever wanted. Right? In a game against the 49ers, he recovered a ball that San Francisco fumbled. Right, So San Francisco's on offense. They fumble the ball. He, in every lineman's dream, picks up the ball and rumbles and tumbles, and he runs Unfortunately, he ran 66 yards, rejoicing, celebrating to the wrong end zone. Dude went the wrong way. Think about watching the game and seeing him, like, muster all the quickness that he can. Like, he's a big man, everything he can. It's like, I've done it. Yes. And everybody's like, no. Everything he could muster sent him to the wrong destination. And here, what I'm trying to connect here, all of the effort and peril was wasted and he became known as Jim the Wrong Way Runner Marshall. Imagine that. And this is far enough along to where there was TV and color. He's, he's immortalized on YouTube forever. Uh, he, it's just always gonna be there. He ran the wrong way. I read a commentary by Michael uh, Kruger and he referenced this story. So I, I decided to, to rip it off and share it with you because it, it seemed fitting in the text. Because in our panic of the chaos of a hostile world or maybe a post-Christian world, we may too find ourselves in a moment where in the madness we have to make a decision of which way will we run? Which way will you go? Which direction will you head? The text by way of metaphor presents two possible options in the ways that you can run. Will you run towards what it calls Mount Sinai or Mount Zion? 
these are our symbolic references to the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Hey, you can run to the Old Covenant or you can run to the New. Make your choice of which way you'll run. Sinai represents the Old. This is what the original audience was thinking about. Maybe in the tension, we leave Jesus and we go back to the Old Covenant. It's not like we don't believe in God anymore. We're just going to go do that. And Zion represents the New Covenant that Jesus came and inaugurated and delivered to those who would follow him. So the, the big question presents itself here. Which way will you go? And what we need to understand is the entire book of Hebrews has, has all came to this one question. All of it, 11 chapters before, have all led to this. All the statements of Christ's superiority, his betterness, uh, the, the examples of his preeminence, they don't stand as simple facts that you get to just file away and go, well, that's cool. They all lead you to this point where they demand you to answer which, choice, or which way will you run with the information that you've been given. Will you run towards Jesus or away from him? Will you double down on your belief in Christ, even if it causes you chaos in the streets? Or will you turn around and will you go the other way? Which way will you go? The entire book presents this question at your feet and at mine. The text kicks off with the words, for... Same as the words, therefore, when you see them. And what that does is it makes us look back at verses 12 through 17. That's the text that we covered uh, a couple weeks ago. The text that said to strengthen your hands and your weak knees and make straight paths. So it's going, what's the reason that you can strengthen your hands? What's the reason that you can strengthen your, your weak knees? What's the reason that you can make straight paths? The reason is that you have not come to Mount Sinai. You've come to the better mountain, Mount Zion, through Christ. We're going to spend uh, the, the rest of our time figuring out what the original audience would have understood already. What exactly does that mean to them? And, and what does that mean to us to have come to the better mountain? The scene the author paints starts with saying, we have not come to, and he lists some stuff, we have not come to what may be touched. We haven't come to a blazing fire and darkness and, and we haven't come to, to gloom and, and, and a tempest and we have not come to the sound of a trumpet and we have not come to the, to the voice uh, of which the hearers said, oh, please make it not talk to us anymore. That's not the mountain that we've come to. The question for our minds tends to be, well, what in the world are they talking about here? That seems like a, a scene from, from Lord of the Rings as they're approaching Mordor of darkness and trumpets and, and tempests and shaking. And, but this isn't a scene from, from fiction. This is a scene from, from Exodus 19 when Israel came to the, to the foot of Mount Sinai to, to receive the Old Covenant. You may remember this as the scene that Moses went up the mountain and came down with the, the Ten Commandments. That's the scene. That's the foot of the mountain that they are at. Exodus 19 says this. It's 19 verses 10 through 14. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. So check out what happens here. Before the Lord comes down, before he comes just 
somewhat near to the people to speak to them. Before he ever gets there, you need to consecrate the people is what he tells Moses. They need to begin to wash and cleanse and clean themselves. They need to wash their garments. They need to separate themselves and make themselves ready for the presence of God. For three days, they need to prepare and make themselves ready for me. So to consecrate something is to to set something aside as, as holy or clean. And think about what it says here. It took three days for them to be close to ready to be quasi-close to God. Understand that three days of consecration isn't a, they, they hit a start timer and they do literally nothing for three days and they're like, hey, it's time. No, for three days, there's a specific intentional purification and washing and cleansing that they need to do in order for the Lord only to come somewhat close, but not too close to them. We don't wait three days for an Amazon package. You're getting this, and yet three, one, Two, three, prepare, prepare, clean, wash, cleanse, set aside. There's something coming. Make sure you're ready for this for three days. Before the day comes, they're warned that they can go to the base of the mountain, but there's limits, there's, there's boundaries, and they cannot cross those. If they cross the boundaries, when God descends on the mountain, they're going to die. Man or beast, it doesn't matter. Stay back. They can't even touch the mountain or they will die on that day. And we may hear this and think, okay, what's up with the theatrics and the, and the rules and, and, and the show? Like, well, why does this have to happen? Why must they prepare themselves to only kind of get into somewhat of an earshot of God? Why can't they just come to God or God come to, to them? Why can't they just roll up on any given day and God see them face to face? And the answer is God's holiness won't allow it. This is something that we've We've somewhat begun to, to lose as we've flattened the trajectory of all things. We forget that God isn't like us. God is the Lord, the creator. He's not just a better version of you and I. He is wholly different than us, and the standard of holiness for him is utter perfection. That's why he tells them to stand back as he draws near, because he is holy and they are not, just like we are not on our own. If anyone tries to draw near to the presence of God in an unconsecrated, unpurified way, if they try and approach the holiness of God in their their sin, they will be consumed. They will not be able to stand. They will die. Like, what is this figuratively like? It's like you trying to walk up to the sun. The holiness and the radiance and the purity of God will engulf you and you will not be able to, to stand. Three days to prepare to get essentially within earshot still. Verse 18, uh, going back to Exodus. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. These verses hold the elements that the author of Hebrews begin to call to mind that the original audience would have understood. In this moment, it says the entire mountain is, is, is wrapped up in, in smoke as the Lord descended upon it. The, the scene would have been intense as the presence of God came down like a fire. You have to begin to see this. A fire comes down from the sky. Smoke engulfs a mountain. A trumpet rings out going, hey, it's here. Don't, don't cross those boundaries. And the whole mountain begins to shake and tremble in the presence of God. 
And God spoke to the people before calling Moses up the mountain. The text says that the presence of God, even in the, 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 the distance, when they're at the bottom, even up in the, the distance was so great, it was so powerful that it terrified the people. After the Lord had spoken to them, it terrified them so much, they turned to Moses and said, please don't let him talk to us anymore. We haven't talked to you and you relay the word. Says, I, I, I don't think I can take it anymore. The holiness of God, just even speaking from a distance is, is too much for me. Just, please just have him t- talk to you. I'll, I'll become undone if he begins to speak to me anymore. They feared even the voice of God and his holiness would consume them. There's something that we've lost. Hebrews says, even Moses, the one accustomed to hearing from God, right? The, the whole Exodus thing has already happened. He spent a, a lot of time hearing from God. He's somewhat accustomed to, accustomed to it. Even he is absolutely terrified. Not just nervous, not just a little scared. Moses trembled with fear in the presence of God, wondering, will I die today? Before he went up and received the old covenant from God. And again, as we've learned through the book of Hebrews, the old covenant is... Is, is the sacrificial system and the law and the, and the priests and all of this process of trying to, to clean yourself, which still made a, a way for people to worship God, but they still had to do it in a distance. Hebrews has shown that as well. The, 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 the presence of God in the, the tabernacle, you could not get even close to it in your sin. Praise God, people were able to come to faith in the old covenant. <laughs> But we must realize that the old covenant and the law and the sacrifices and all the blood and all of those things, all they were doing is pointing to something else that would come. Because the animal sacrifices and all the blood that is shed and no matter what ceremony you do can never make the sins and the stains of humanity clean. You can scrub as hard as you want and it will not work. All of it pointed to a perfect savior who would have to, to come. All of it would show us that we cannot clean ourselves. So notice the the major points of relating to God and drawing near to God at at Sinai. And remember, he's going, you have not come to Mount Sinai anymore. This is what it's like to to, to come to the presence of God or try to to quasi-draw near to him at Sinai. People had to try and clean themselves to get even appropriately close, right? So this mindset of God, I've got to clean myself. I've got to do more. I'm not clean enough. I've got to wash myself. I've got so much more to do to even get somewhat close to him. This is what it looks like in Sinai. God, through the old covenant, couldn't be approached or drawn near to. Humanity always had to stand at some sort of a a distance. They they couldn't get close. God was terrifying at this point. His presence and him speaking was was just almost too much. There's a a constant terror around the presence of God. There was a desire, hey, you speak to me from God because I don't know that I can hear from him. I I, I don't know that, that I can be the one that hears and a real fear of all the people that if I mess up, if I take one step too far, I'm going to die. Again, the theme, self-cleaning, distance, fear, regulations, death. This is what it looked like to come to the Mount of Sinai and try and draw near to the God of all the universe. The author is saying, if we were still at Mount Sinai, staring at that scene, trembling with them, there's no way that we could strengthen our hands and our weak knees and make straight paths. There's no way that we could even endure. But that's not where we're at anymore. His point is we're not at Sinai, we're at Zion. We're at a different place. Verse 22, one, one more to go. That was amens if you're not following. But you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings. 
and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. When we take a look at the picture that the author paints here, completely different, right? Zion is marked by terror, or isn't marked by terror and trembling and fire and smoke. It's the city of the living God. We need to know that Zion is not some just imaginary, fictitious place either. Mount Zion is a historical location where Jerusalem was built, and Jerusalem is the place that the temple was built. The same temple that the believers walked around in the the New Testament Gospels, the the same temple that Jesus chased people out of with the whip, it was a real place. And what the author is showing is Sinai had to be stayed away from and was scary and terrifying. But Zion is a place you can come and walk around. The author is using the city of Mount Zion to point to how God, through the new covenant, was making a way for us to be with him. For the presence of God to be available, to be walked in and shared and enjoyed through Christ. You don't have to stay away anymore. You don't have to be scared of death in the new covenant at Zion. We can boldly approach the throne of grace, the presence of God, and one day the heavenly Jerusalem will be our home. So there's this, this, hey, you can approach now, and then one day it'll be your home forever for all who are in Christ and saved through the redemption of Jesus. Not only does Zion give believers the ability to draw near to God in the present, it makes a way for them to live with God in a renewed creation later in the heavens. And the author begins to point to some things. He says there's angels in festal gatherings, along with the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and God the judge of all standing with those who are made righteous. Those who are made perfect in and through Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, the better covenant. This is pretty profound because Mount Sinai would always remind you of your inadequacy. It always reminds you your sin, your unholiness, your gap between you and God, the terror of it. You can wash as hard as you want. You can, pray, you can prepare for three days, three months, three years, and three lifetimes and you still can't come up the mountain of God. It just screams at you. There's nothing that you can do to bridge the gap. You better be careful or you will die. There's no way to consecrate. There's no way to purify. There's nothing that you can do. No feet, no no anything that you can do to fix this, to be able to make your way to God. Stay away. See yourself clearly. You're way too dirty to come up. But Mount Zion is the opposite. It's a party. What the author calls a festal gathering. What exactly does that look like? I don't know, but I want to see it. Where angels and those enrolled in heaven through Jesus in his perfect sacrifice come and they stand with God. They stand before God as clean. Notice before, I can't even get close to you. I can't even go up the base of the mountain because you will destroy any man who tries to come up and stand by you. Now the picture is different. You stand with God clean. Sinai reminds you of how dirty you are. Zion proclaims you've been cleaned by Christ good news. Hey, we hit three. Don't go too high. And now you have an inheritance that is yours forever in him. What's the inheritance? The constant declaration that you are clean and you can come close and you don't have to worry and you don't have to fear anymore. Christ's death has removed the fear of death and the fear of God. 
Because in the death of Christ, we have been made perfect and we have been made clean. This is the gospel. And the author is just laying thick the elements of the gospel over and over. Again, we have to do some catch-up to get it, but now we can hopefully wrap our minds around it. Zion is the new covenant, which is the message of salvation through Christ. You cannot clean yourself, but in Christ and through him, you can stand right next to the judge of all creation clean. Can you just set back and, and imagine that scene? You are next to the judge of all things with a clear view of your full history. My mind's going, please don't turn and look at me. Please don't turn and look at me, right? Please, please don't bring it out. Of, please don't bring that. You stand clean though, why? Because the perfection of Jesus is placed over you and there's been a, a, a judicial ruling that God is grateful and glad to give that you are clean and you can stand here. You don't have to sweat or worry or run out of fear of getting exposed or hope maybe he'll look at that guy and not me. You get to join in the celebration of the redeemed through Jesus, and you get to stop trying to make yourself look acceptable. I don't have to work so hard anymore. Does it mean we don't do anything? No, that's not what it means. You just don't have to cleanse yourself. Why, you've thrown the full hope of your faith into Jesus, and in return, the perfection of Jesus is placed on top of you. So you stand there holy. You stand there with peace and freedom. Where once there was fear in Mount Sinai, now there's freedom. Where once there was distance, now there is relationship. Where once there was work and work and work and work, now there is rest in the work of Christ. These two mountains, they just couldn't be any different. These are the two covenants that are placed before us, and they couldn't be more different. And the choice becomes, which one do you belong to and which one will you run towards? Every man, even an atheist, even an atheist has a choice. Which mountain will you run to? Why choose the third? There is no third. Notice the words that the author uses to close up this section over the mountains, over the covenants. Both the old covenant through blood and the new covenant through blood. The author says in words that we should slow down just, just a little bit, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word over you. And it speaks a better word over me and it speaks a better word over all who place their faith in Jesus. And then the question is a better word than what? The short answer is everything, but he kind of goes into it here. A better word than the blood of Abel in the Old Testament and under the Old Covenant. Well, what does that mean, the blood of Abel? Abel was the son of Adam and Eve who was killed by his brother Cain. Right, The good brother, the one who is faithful to God in his sacrifices, was killed by the sinful one who is unfaithful to God in his life. And Genesis 4 tells us the blood of Abel cries out for justice from God. It cries out for, for judgment against the offender, for, for, for the righteous wrath of God to come down, for, for judgment to come down, while the blood of Jesus cries out for mercy and delivers peace. Right? Do you see the difference? One goes, bring judgment down, and the other goes, bring peace down. Look what I've done. To read this in the right way, though, we need to understand we're supposed to read this in the place of Cain. Like, but I didn't kill anybody. It doesn't matter. You still were unfaithful to the God of the universe. We're the ones who have offended God. We're the ones who sinned against God. We're the ones who deserve judgment under the old covenant. If we go that way, then we are in charge of trying to clean ourselves up. And we'll get exactly what we deserve in that process, the wrath of God for our own sin. But under the new covenant in Mount Zion, the, the covenant mediated by Jesus, the, the true and better will have mercy because Christ has made us clean and pure. 
And the righteous perfection of Jesus, again, is applied to those who believe in him and follow him with their life. Peace in their hearts, peace with God, peace in relationship, and peace together as we walk the whole thing out is what you get in the blood of Jesus. The author's point is clear. You'll find nothing else in all the earth. It doesn't matter how far east or how far west you go that will speak a better word over you than Jesus will and his blood will. Nothing can deliver this to you. So in the middle, back wrapping into the context, in the middle of your pain, in the middle of a broken world, in the middle of your anxiety and your tears and the frustration, in the middle of it all still being true, hold fast to him because the end is still true. Keep running towards him with endurance. Friends, this this text is saturated with, with beautiful points about Christ's benefits. See that part about the inheritance that that is given to the firstborns. The firstborns are those whose faith there is, is in Jesus and those who've been adopted into the very family of God. You're adopted in into the family. You will never be cast out. But even with all the benefits, it still offers us a question. The question is this, how do you see and hear God? Like, what? Well, well, We'll make a couple assumptions if, if you're here. You're, you're trying to relate to God in, in some sort of kind of way. And so, yes, there's the question of which mountain will you run to, but the other question is, is how do you see and hear from the God of all creation, though? And the question isn't meant to be metaphorical or airy or, or weird. We're not trying to be, like, super cute or artsy, but if Mount Sinai evokes feelings of, of distance, in fear and worry, in this low key, like he's going to erupt on me and crush me. Or if, it, if Mount Sinai is the place that you like, hey, I just need to make sure I maintain a, a controllable distance away. If, if the Mount Sinai side of hearing from God makes you uh, not want to hear from him because you're kind of afraid of what he'll say or what that'll bring to you, then that means that you're still living at the base of Mount Sinai and that's the way that you're hearing from God. You're living... Not in freedom, but still under the mentality of I've got to clean myself and I've got to be scared. You're living in the freedom that Zion is meant to bring you where you get to stand clean in righteousness before the Father. And what does the Lord want to do if that's the case? He wants to invite you to hear him clearly and draw near to him. This is the author's point. Child of God, see that God has made a way for you to draw near to the presence of God and you don't have to be terrified when you do. God has made a way for you to stand next to him as the judge and not sweat about it. You've been made clean through Jesus. And and here's the beautiful part of it. No chaos in the world, no situation that comes, and no mistake that you're going to make and no mistake that you made in your past can take that away because you are his forever and a loved adopted as a firstborn. This is why the author can say with, with, with I think, some bass in, in his voice, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. Nothing else can do this. How do you hear from God? Are you scared? Are you terrified? Are you, are you worried? Do you need to hear the, the invitation to come and see what I've done to make a way for you to draw near and not be terrified? As we close, we'll do kind of what we do every week as we open the word. What we do is we, we take a break from our world and our kingdom and our pursuits and, and, and us, and we recenter our life on, on the hearts of God's work towards us through Jesus. And our appropriate response to the work of Christ is at times what this text is showing us is celebration. And as I thought about this towards the end of the week and was texting Clayton and talking to Garrett about this, 
this morning, that, that is an element of our response that is lacking. There's a celebration here. And, and I've seen dudes freak out because they hit with a, a stick, a ball into a hole from five feet away. Lose their stinking minds. I've seen people lose their minds over a new car or a new job or a telephone or that their kid walked three feet and fell on their face. Like, yeah! And the text reminds us, hey, have fun with that. None of that is a better word than Jesus over you, though. It's not telling you don't enjoy life. But we, we, we have a couple things upside down where other things are bringing us a better word and a better promise than the best promise. And the hope for us this week is maybe the idea of that festal gathering, that this party of the saints that we're invited into, the reality of a, of a deep celebration would become just a little bit more real for your heart. And I'm not asking you for some sort of forced or, or manu- manufactured or, or coursed celebration. We're like, do I yell, yeah, now? Or like, I, I don't, maybe if the Lord tells you to, I don't know. But a Holy Spirit-inspired joy coming flying out of sons and daughters, I think it sometimes would be an appropriate response. Why? Because the best word that could have ever happened has been spoken over me. And sometimes I weep and I struggle. Sometimes I'm frustrated. And sometimes I'm like, yes, it's good. There's a celebration that comes with that. I don't have to earn anything anymore. I got to earn my paycheck i got to earn my reputation. You list over and over and over what you have to earn out in the world. You do not have to earn coming to Zion in Jesus. You get to accept it and you get to walk into it and it brings joy. I hope that it would do that for you and if I'm very honest for me. We'll take communion in the backside of worship. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says, For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. That the Lord Jesus in the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, even in the communion table, there are times where we come and, and, I, and I think there's these elements that, be, because the book of, of, of 1st, 2nd Corinthians tells us to take communion seriously, that we, mean the, that we think the only way to take communion is, is somber, though. Serious and somber don't always have to be together. We can be serious and come and take the bread and dip it into the cup and go, you've done all of the work and there's a better word over me. And this week was awful. And it's still true. And you can take and he can go back and go, man, thank you. I needed that relief for my art. See, the author has shown us that we have two options, Mount Sinai or Mount Zion or Sinai. Which also can be boiled down to we have the option of Christ or ourself. This is why I said there's no third mountain. It's, it's only two. We can have Christ cleanse us, save us, and give us a new identity. We can have his righteousness applied over our brokenness so fully that we stand before the judge without worry and we get to celebrate or you get to clean yourself. You represent yourself. You purify yourself. In that case, you have to be the one that toils. You can never stop. 
You can never stop laboring because you're always going to be trying on your merits and your ability and your works and your goodness to make God accept you. It's a never-ending road of sadness and anxiety, and guess where that road heads? Nowhere, because the Bible tells us all the righteousness that you could possibly try and get on your own is like filthy rags to God. Go Google what that means later. It's gross. It will not work. You cannot make yourself righteous before the Creator. The choice is yours. Do you want to try and clean yourself or let Him clean you? And then if He has done it, you get to celebrate. Look what He did. Look what He did. Praise the Lord that the option of Zion is there. Man, you guys can come back up of Christ's work. I pray that our hearts would be encouraged at the table as we take with, the, with that in mind today. I don't know what that looks for you and I like, but that our hearts would learn to begin to celebrate just a, a little bit more. And I would just tell you, hey, why have we extended some things? And, and why does the band step back and give you more time to pray? And, and why has, has time been extended? It's so that you can begin to pray and rejoice and celebrate what the Lord has done. Maybe just to begin to, to use some of that time to do that. But I pray that your heart would be encouraged in Christ today, that you see the beauty of Mount Zion and the work that has been done for you. You don't have to be a member here to take communion. We just ask that your faith be in Christ. We'll play, I think, three songs. We've got some time for you to engage in prayer. The, the way that I try and shepherd you even in that time, if, if you're feeling that you're relating to God in a, in a, in a source of terror and fear and worry, Maybe you go to the Lord and say, man, I just don't think I'm seeing you rightly. I trust in Jesus, but I still think that you're angry. You go to him and pray, hey, we help clear up my view. Let me see you clearly. Or, or maybe it's the, the side of like, I just don't think celebration is ever in the cards for me. Like the gospel, it seems good. And I'm kind of grateful, but I, I don't know. There's just celebration isn't something that's stirred there. Maybe you begin to ask the Holy Spirit, we, we help me understand why I'm not finding more joy in this. Will you do your work in me? Will you show me the beauty of the gospel in what you've done? I, I pray that maybe you would use that time and simply encourage for anyone who has not turned to Christ. There's not a better time than really today. Our, our hope is that you would come to the Mount of Zion, that you would come not trying to fix yourself. Again, the beauty, you don't have to wash yourself to go there. You get to come and say, Christ, will you clean me? Christ, will I follow you? Will you accept me? And the answer is yes. If that's something that you need to do, don't put it off anymore. Will you stand with me? Father, we ask that you would draw near to us today. You're good and you're kind. Lord, I pray that you help us to see clearly what you've done. Lord, I pray for the heart that relates to you still in fear and worry. <laughs> an apprehension that they would find the joy of understanding that you are a good father who's well-pleased. That they would see even the image of you from Zephaniah that you dance in celebration over your children. You're not always angry and looking to destroy. You're loving and you're kind. May we see that. May we see the beauty of not having to tiptoe around wondering if you're going to crush us. But getting to exhale and know that you've accepted us. Lord, for those who are far off, I pray that you bring them close. For those whose hearts are hard or sad, Lord, would you bring celebration and joy. Holy Spirit, do your work. We ask that you would come near. Show us the face of Jesus and the beauty of what he's done. God, may our words and our songs, may they be pleasing to you.
and pray that in your name. Amen.